It's the first Sunday of a new year. Jonathan mentioned last week, uh, last Sunday of 2008, this is kind of a time of year when we tend to make resolutions or resolves, and I'd already been thinking about one for 2009. That's sort of what I'm going to talk about this morning. It's simple. In fact, it sounds trite when I say it. Uh, but my resolve for 2009 is to live to the glory of God. Sounds sort of religious, sort of hokey, sort of trite. Um, this has become my resolve because I've been thinking, meditating on some scriptures that have this as their theme. And it has struck me how generally my view of life is deficient or my motivation for life is deficient to the degree that I fail to see God as He is. And then if I can see Him as He is, I'll be motivated by His glory. So I want to find, I believe it's there, in God's glory, a resolution, New Year's resolution worthy of the new year, and then a motivation that's worthy for a lifetime. We're going to look in Isaiah 6 here in just a minute. That's kind of our key passage this morning. Um, Isaiah 6 is a grand passage. It's sort of one of the highlights of the Old Testament um, because Isaiah sees God in heaven, and this is Isaiah's commission. Isaiah's uh, called as a prophet to Israel in this passage, not in chapter 1, but here in chapter 6. And he sees God, and God wants to impress on Isaiah something of his grandeur before he sends him out as his messenger. And so that's what we see here in Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 10. It says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, Israel's king dies. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. This is in heaven. I don't know if Isaiah is there physically or just spiritually. Sitting on a throne lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim, this special kind of angel, stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, or is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And by the way, just as an aside, you hear this language about the temple filling with smoke and trembling. It's the language out of Exodus 19 and 20 also. When God comes down on Sinai, reveals himself, shows his glory, as it were, to Israel. And to Moses, it's the same kind of language. It's this overwhelming, physical, and more presence of God. And, and Isaiah is getting more of the same thing, only in closer confines. Verse 5, Then I said, Woe is me, I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. 
Isaiah has two responses here to God, to seeing God in his glory in heaven. One is he wants to serve, which we'll talk about more in just a minute. The other, though, is this immediate sense of sinfulness, of deficiency. Um, This is common whenever you see uh, in the scripture somebody sort of confronted with either uh, the presence of God or with an angelic being. There's almost always this sense of uh, deficiency, sinfulness. And the thought seems to be this, anytime we gain a fuller or clearer vision or understanding or knowledge of who God is, what he's like, it kind of shines the light on our own deficiency. You know, when we sit amongst ourselves on Sunday morning, I can compare myself with you. And if I compare favorably, then I'm okay. But you know, any of us, when we stand before God, all that's gone. You're before perfection and holiness and glory. And so that Glory, that presence of God, it shines the light on us and we see ourselves in ways we don't otherwise. We see our deficiency. So Isaiah, who I'm sure, if he was sitting with us this morning, good guy, solid guy, loved the Lord. You know what I mean? You wouldn't look at him and say, this guy is full of problems. But when he got before God and saw God as he was, he has a new sense, not only of God and his glory, but of his own sinfulness and unworthiness. And so... God takes care of that form because he has the angel take a coal from the altar. And of course, the altar is the place where sacrifices were made and burned for God. The place atonement was made for sin. And he brings that coal and he touches Isaiah's mouth. And I'm assuming that for Isaiah, why does he say I'm a man of unclean lips with people of unclean lips? Isaiah is going to be God's messenger. So he's going to speak from his mouth God's words. And he's particularly aware that not only am I deficient, but everything that comes out of my mouth is deficient. You know, we, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the angel touches his lips, God's messenger, to say, you're covered, you're good. God takes care of Isaiah's sense of sinfulness. It's real. And so God deals with it and takes care of it. Now, related to his, uh, this, also the second desire, this response to serve, it's no accident that Isaiah happens to be visiting heaven in body or in spirit, when God's having this conversation with the angelic hosts, I take it, saying, by the way, I wonder who we should send as our messenger to Israel. You know, it's no no happenstance, as it were, that Isaiah is there. God wants to send Isaiah as his messenger, but he wants Isaiah to volunteer for the job. And so he brings Isaiah up at the time in which he's throwing out this question like, hmm, I wonder who I could send. Who might be a good messenger for me to the nation of Israel? And Isaiah pops right up after he knows his sins are forgiven and to God's query, who shall I send? Who will go for us? Isaiah raises his hand and shouts, here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. When I read this, I think of, uh, you know, kids in a classroom, if you're in, I'm thinking lower elementary grades, you know, if the kids are lined up in their seats, the teacher's asking questions and kids raise their hand to answer the questions when they know them. And I'm thinking of, say, a little fellow like Johnny, who's not the brightest bulb in the room. So maybe he doesn't get to raise his hand very often. So when the teacher asks a question that Johnny actually knows the answer to, man, his hand is going up in a hurry. And, you know, he's waving it. Me, me, you know, call on me. I've got this one. I think that's Isaiah's motivation. Not that he's the low bulb in the class, but it's that sense of pick me, choose me, Not a little, not I'll go if you make me, you know, not Jonah, don't send me, I'm not going if you make me. Isaiah is exactly the opposite, full of enthusiasm, I want to go, I'm your man. Now think about this for just a second. 
He's in the courts of heaven. He's just got there. He's overwhelmed with his own sense of deficiency. And also, just think of the company he's in in heaven right now. These seraphim, these, these angelic beings that have glory that, that makes him blush, as it were. You know, when John in Revelation sees angels, he bows down before them because they look like God to him. They're so much more glorious, so far above his physical being that John bows down to angels. So here's Isaiah in the courts of heaven before God with the angels and the seraphim around him. And he volunteers for service? I'm thinking, you know, Gabriel, he comes down to Mary and Zechariah later, you know, to announce the incarnation. I'm thinking Gabriel would be a good messenger. You know, and maybe he's standing there. Or Michael. What makes Isaiah think he can or should volunteer as God's messenger? What's got him, not only his sins are forgiven, this is good, but in this company... Why does Isaiah pipe up as if, compared to these angelic beings, he can be God's messenger? And I think it just comes down to this. I think once he knows his sins are forgiven, he is so overwhelmed by the glory of God that he's ready to do anything God would see as helpful. That he's ready to lay his life down with no reserve whatsoever to honor God because he's seen God as he is. He has seen the glory of God And the glory of God becomes the spring to his life. It's the reason he puts his hand up in this august body and says, send me. You know, he's the least likely there. But he's overwhelmed by the glory of God and seeing God in a way he's never seen before. He says, I want to do whatever you want. God, whatever you want, that's what I want to do. Seeing God as he is, sensing the immensity of his greatness, the enormity of his holiness, the perfection of, of his beauty and his goodness. All Isaiah could think of was that he would do anything God wanted. He'd jump at any task God might assign. It was God's glory that compelled Isaiah to volunteer. God's glory inspired Isaiah to action and service. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Think of this too. You know, I'm I'm so convinced that most of us Uh, our motivation for life is so faulty that it just doesn't hold up over time. And think of Isaiah. Now we look back and, and you think, Isaiah, wow, God's man, cool. But what kind of ministry did God give Isaiah? Do you remember what this is like? It's failure from our, from our perspective. He consigns Isaiah to a ministry of failure because this is God's message to Israel through Isaiah. You're going to see, but you won't see. You're going to hear, but you won't understand. In fact, God uses Isaiah to further harden the nation of Israel. And this is the thing. They've rejected God so long. They've said no so long that God has said, I validate your choice. You you haven't wanted to see. You haven't wanted to hear. You don't want to obey. I'm validating your choice, and you're not going to. So when Isaiah goes, Isaiah's ministry is to harden the nation of Israel. So just think of this. If Isaiah's motivation is the response he gets from the people he speaks to, he's in trouble because he's not going to get a good response. So if his motivation relies on the people he's speaking to, his ministry is not going to go very far. He won't be able to be faithful to God because his motive is in the people he's serving. Now, this doesn't mean he didn't love the Jews. You read all the prophets, you know, they weep over Jerusalem. He loved the Jews. It's not, I'm not saying that. You know, if you're a parent, this is the same thing. If you love little Johnny, but little Johnny doesn't love you back, do you still love little Johnny? 
Or do you say, nope. See, if your motive doesn't go higher than the people you serve, you're in trouble. And Isaiah would have been in trouble. So for Isaiah to be successful in basically giving a message of condemnation to the nation, his motive had to be higher than the people he was serving. He needed a motive as lofty as God's glory because it was going to be a hard road Mr. Isaiah was hoeing. His ministry wasn't one so much of glory. It was one of condemnation. It was telling the nation, you've blown it. God's done with you for now. There will be restoration in the future. But for this generation, God is saying, you don't want to see and you're not going to. So for us, just like Isaiah, if our motivation for whatever we're doing in life, if it rises no higher than either what we're getting out of it personally or the, what we consider the appropriate response of people around us, we're in trouble. Because that won't get us home. That won't let us finish whatever the tasks in life our God gives us. Isaiah needed a motive bigger than the nation of Israel and bigger than himself. And his motive was the glory of God, and that was the motive that could get him home. So before God sends Isaiah out, God shows him himself so that he has a motive adequate to the ministry he was given by God. This actually isn't the passage that motivated me to think about God's glory for uh, this year. Um, We'll look at some others here in just a minute. But my goal for 2009 is to sort of ratchet up my motivation in life to make it God's glory that's my motive, not some lesser or inferior thing. Or, even if I'm saying it's God's glory is the motive of my life and it's not, to do a reality test, a reality check and say, I say these words, but that's not really where I'm at. So reality check for 2009. Think about this. Um, I think, generally, thinking of words and mouths, um, we often say or we often pray. We do right here. Um, Lord, we give you all the glory. Or we pray, Lord, uh, glorify yourself. And I think it's not that we don't mean that, but I just think we probably don't mean it in the way we should or that we don't follow through in the ways that we should. Let me tell you just briefly about glory seen from both the Old and New Testament. The Hebrew word most commonly translated glory is kabod, and its, its root is weight. It's weighty. Um, it's substance or real substance. That could be wealth or power. It could be ability. But the thought is that something or someone is substantial. They're weighty. In the political arena the last several years, the word gravitas has been used. They have gravity. That's what we're talking about here. In the Old Testament sense, glory was this sense that something is heavy due to their substance, due to who or what they are or what they're like. God is the ultimate reality. He is the heaviest dude around. He has more gravitas than all of the rest of us or the universe rolled together. God is the ultimate awesome reality. In that sense, He is the ultimate glory. Or if you go to the New Testament, the the term translated is typically doxa. And it means light, uh, brightness, splendor, excellence. So that when we think of glory in that sense, it's that God is the source of all light, all glory, all excellence, the ultimate source of all beauty. So when we say... Uh, God, we attribute to you glory. Or, or God, we want to live in a way that glorifies you. We're saying, God, 
You're the ultimate reality. You're the most substantial thing in the universe. You're the thing, the person that never changes, never started, never ends, never changes, never learns, never grows. You're the ultimate reality. Not only that, but you're the ultimate source of all that we could quantify as beauty or light or splendor or excellence. So that when we say, Lord, we want to glorify you, we're saying a couple things at least. We're saying, Lord, we want to see the things that are true of you. We want to declare the truth about you. And then we want to live or conduct our lives in a way that's worthy of who and what you are and what you're like. And, you know, it doesn't take long for me, and I'm sure it doesn't take long for you either. If I say, God, you're the ultimate reality. And because that, you're like, you're the, uh, you're the black hole, as it were. You have so much gravity, so much mass, so much substance that all in the universe swirls around you. And you're the source of all beauty and goodness and excellence. If I say that on one hand, and then I look at my life and say, does my life reflect, either in my appreciation of who God is, in my declaration of who He is, or in the way I live my life, does my life in any way reflect the awesome reality of God's glory? I have to say, in short order, no, it doesn't. And you'd probably say the same thing. And Isaiah in the courts of heaven said the same thing. And I'm just convinced that if we can somehow get a hold of God's greatness and His glory, it wouldn't be trite or glib to say, Lord, we give you the glory. Because we'd just be saying, Lord, we acknowledge you're it. We're not. You're it. You're the ultimate everything. And we acknowledge that. We declare the truth of that. And we try to live our lives in accordance with that. Um, Have you ever seen a young guy head over heels in love with a beautiful young woman? Matt, have you ever seen such a thing? I don't know. Uh, You know, they're kind of obnoxious, aren't they? Because, you know, they have a stupid grin on their face all the time. And, you know, they, they want to help this young lady in any way they can. They just want to be around her. You know, their family doesn't see much of these guys, do they? And the, the, the girl's family can't get rid of them, right? And they open doors and they adjust their schedules, etc. Why? Because they found someone of such surpassing glory that all they can think of is, I want to be with her. And I want to do anything I can to be with her. And I'll do anything I can for her. That's sort of what we're talking about here. And I think the degree to which we fail to live for the glory of God is the degree to which we simply fail to see Him as He is. You know, that young guy that's seen maybe a thousand young women, but when he sees that one that he knows is just right for him, man, it's over. Well, that's what it should be like for us. That's what it was like for Isaiah. Whatever he knew of God before, it was all eclipsed by the awesome reality of God's presence and glory. And that's what we need. I think that's the reality check we need. We need to be that guy with the grin on our face, in love with this woman because he's seen her beauty and her excellence, and it's all he can think of. That's the way it should be for us with God. You know that living for God's glory, if we say this, it can sound like a real churchy term. It can sound like a real religious or trite phrase. But do you know that if if my motive becomes to live for God's glory, do you know that it affects all kinds of areas in my life? And these are some of the verses that I've been meditating on recently. For instance, 
If I focus on glorifying God in my life, do you know that it changes the way I perceive the world around me? And by that I mean, if, if God's glory is the spring or the motive for my life, do you know that I can actually perceive truth in a way others cannot? That I can, I can see reality in a way others cannot. Jesus says this in John 5. He said, I don't receive glory from men. That is, I don't act in a way that I'm trying to get glory from men. I don't accept that. That's not my motive. I have come in my Father's name. I'm here to honor or glorify my Father. And you don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe, or you cannot believe, Jesus says, when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? This, this is deep for me. This says that if I don't make God's glory my goal, I cannot perceive reality. I'm jaded. It's like I put on a pair of glasses. If my motive in life is to gain glory for myself and I try and gain it by impressing you or others, I'm jaded. And I can't see reality around me as it is. I don't perceive life as it really is. It's like I've put on some lenses and they distort everything around me. Jesus says they couldn't believe because they were seeking not God's glory, but their own and from other people. This is, by the way, I think, as an aside, and I say this because I've had lots of conversations with lots of people. The fear of man, and this can be seen in two ways. Either I fear what others think of me or I want glory from other people. This is one of the key sins of all humanity. And it's idolatry because we're making ourselves or other people God. And we bow down to them because we want them to give us glory and affirm us. We're okay. It's idolatry. In Jeremiah, it says, you're cursed when you put your trust in man. But that's actually what we do. We have an object of worship. We, we want to be approved by something less than God. Jesus says, when we do this, we can't see life as it really is. We can't believe the truth when we make something less than God and God's glory our goal. So when I say, and when I mean, and when I try to live this out, when I say I'm going to make God's glory my motive for living, guess what? I can perceive reality. I can receive truth and believe things as they really are, the scriptures or things in general, in a way other people cannot. Seeking the glory of God lets me see things as they really are. Not only that, but seeking the glory of God changes the way I speak, changes the words I say. Jesus says this in John 7. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. Do you know, none of us is absolutely trustworthy because we all blow it. We're all sinful. But to the degree that we make it our aim to glorify God, our words become trustworthy. Because we're not trying to shade the truth or say things in a way that is personally to our advantage. But we're saying to the God of all truth, to the God who is truth, we're speaking like Isaiah, our words become His messengers. So when we seek God's glory, it changes the words we say we become more trustworthy to others because our end isn't about us, it's about God and it's about what's true and about what's helpful. And go back to Isaiah, think for a minute. If Isaiah was seeking glory from men, he wouldn't have been telling them the hard things he did. 
He couldn't because they'd reject him. And for you and I, if we're seeking approval from others, the glory that other people can give us, then we change what we say. But if we make God's glory our goal and our motive, we're free to speak the truth. Other people can trust us. Our words become the truth. This is a good thing. You become a blessing to those around you. By the way, another aside, um, most people because of this won't tell you the truth. And And I'm dead serious on this. Most Christians will not tell you the truth about yourself or them because of this dynamic. Um, Christians are called to speak the truth and love to one another, but you know what? We don't. And it's because we don't want to give offense. We don't want each other, we don't, I don't want you to be angry at me. And if I tell you that you're blowing it in some area of your life, I'm afraid you'll reject me and you'll be angry. And so I don't. <clears throat> and the church is guilty of this in spades. If I seek God's glory, I'm, I'm loving God, And I'm loving you. And part of that means sometimes I tell you things that I know you probably won't want to hear. And guys, for whatever reason, I've had a lifetime of this. I'm good at offending people. And I do it semi-regularly. And you know what? I can't get away from it. Because if I don't, I know I'll be held accountable by God when I see Him face to face. Christians do not speak the truth and love to each other because we're afraid of each other, because we're seeking our own glory. And if we lay that thing aside, that idol, which is either ourselves or others, and if we said, God, we're going to speak to glorify you, then we'd be free to speak the truth in love. Still going to get us in trouble sometimes. Got Isaiah in trouble, got Jeremiah in trouble, etc., etc. But guys, you'll have no regrets at the end of the day. And you know, at, towards the end of Paul's life in Acts 20, he's seen some folks, some elders of the church at Ephesus. He knows it's for the last time. And you know what he says to them? I'm free of the blood of all men. I have no guilt on my hands related to you or your life or your future. Do you know why? Because I've told you the whole counsel of God. In the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel's the spokesman for God. And in fact, during the captivity period, when the nation's under judgment, and God says this to Ezekiel, buddy, listen, you're the watchman on the wall. And if you see trouble coming, you better tell them because I'm holding you accountable. If you tell them and they don't repent, that's their problem. But if I give you the warning and you don't tell them, buddy, you're to blame. I'm holding you personally responsible. So guys, this is it. If God's glory is our aim, we're free to speak the truth in love to each other such that, frankly, in a self-serving sense, we've delivered ourselves of guilt. We're not responsible if someone else chooses to go ahead in a way God doesn't want them to. If they, like the nation of Israel in Isaiah's day, say, hey, not going there. I don't want to hear what you have to say. That's fine. That's between them and the Lord. But it's incumbent on us when we know what the truth is and we know that someone else needs to hear the truth. It's incumbent on us, motivated by the glory of God and our love for God and for them to speak the truth in love. And this is a huge sin. It's a huge deficiency in the church. And if God's glory is our motive, we're free to speak the truth. That's the thing, though. It affects us in that way also. Romans 15, Paul says this, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. This is neat for two reasons. Our redemption is to the glory of God. God the Son comes to the earth, accomplishes our redemption, accepts us to glorify the Father. And when we turn around and we accept each other, when we accommodate ourselves to the lowly, Paul talks about in Romans 12, 
when we accept each other, accommodate each other, serve each other, we're glorifying God in the same way Jesus did. We're called to this. If God's glory is our motive, we accept others, we accommodate others, we serve others. That's to the glory of God. Peter takes this thing and he sort of explodes it even more widely. 1 Peter 4, Pete says this, Whoever speaks as one who is speaking the utterances of God, whoever serves as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. Why, Pete? So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and the dominion. So Pete says, if you speak, speak in a way that glorifies God through Jesus Christ. If you serve, serve in a way that you derive your strength from God to honor God, glorify God through Jesus Christ. And then he says, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. In my hearing, in my speaking, in my serving, and then Pete just says, in everything, that God may be glorified. Paul takes up the same theme in 1 Corinthians 10. Briefly, the theme there is the Christians are wondering in the midst of a pagan world in which animals are sacrificed to idols and the meat is sold in the marketplace, they're wondering, what do we do? Do we eat or do we not eat? Do we drink or do we not drink? And Paul's bottom line was this, verse 31, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's a verse you can live by. That's a good New Year's resolution verse. That's a a good life verse, isn't it? Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. If you eat, if you drink, whatever you do, that affects every area of your life. You don't need a law to tell you if your motive in mind is the glory of God, it affects everything we do in life. That's my challenge for this year for myself, and I hope it's one you'll take up as well. Think about this. If God's glory is my motive in life, it affects everything I do. So this year, as I listen to music, watch TV or movies, I can ask myself, does this glorify God? And by the way... um, When you say this on the application level, um, Christians tend to err in a sense that if we say we're going to live for God's glory, it it means that we put ourselves under a certain set of regulations and laws, and and I don't think that's the way God works. Um, I could watch a movie about war and death and disaster and watch it to the glory of God because I think it reflects some truth that God wants me to see. When I say that we listen to music that glorifies God or we watch things or read things that glorifies God, it doesn't mean that we're watching the Hallmark Channel. It doesn't mean that we're listening to, I don't know, La Traviata or something. it, It doesn't narrow our world necessarily, except in a healthy and good way. But are the things that I'm putting in front of me, that I'm taking in in 2009, are they things that help me glorify God or not? That should be my rule. Or before I speak, this is just so big, before words come out of my mouth, will these words glorify God? Are they spoken in truth and are they spoken in love? This would be a good thing. When we eat, when we sleep, I mean, you know, I don't know what this looks like for each of us individually, but this affects every one of us in all the places we live, school, work, whatever. Like Isaiah, we've got to have a motive that's big enough for the life God's called us to And this one's big enough that I'm going to live life to the glory of God. 
living the fullest possible life because those lives, our lives, are informed by God's glory and goodness. And then we bring that full, rich, holy, glorious living into the world around us. As I'm thinking about this, I'm asking myself, God's glory certainly is adequate as a motive for this year and for my life. And how do I get a larger view of God and His glory? In other words, I'm not with Isaiah. I haven't been to heaven. I haven't seen God like Isaiah did. So how do I, with Isaiah, get a vision of God or a view of God that's big enough to make me fall head over heels in love with God, as it were, so that that desire to glorify God becomes my spring. Um, these sound trite, guys, and, but I think this is where the rubber meets the road. I'll say this again. You know, the, one of the ways, one of the key ways that you can see God more clearly and therefore have His glory as more of the motive in your life, it's to read your Bibles. <laughs> yeah, I'm saying it again. Read your Bibles. Uh, my mantra, read your Bible. Uh, you know, when I say this, I don't mean just read the words, but meditate on these things. Think about the truth in the scriptures. And for instance, just let me give you John 1. John 1, 14 says, The word became flesh, dwelt among us. We saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. When I read John 1, I'm, I'm hearing John the Apostle write about Jesus. Now, when Jesus was on the earth, he had no glory, no, no physical glory. Isaiah tells us this. There was nothing that set him apart he probably wouldn't have even been considered handsome. He was plain. Nothing that physically attracted people to him, the Scripture says. But John says he was full of grace and truth. When I read that, I'm like, wow. God is full of grace and truth. I need that. That motivates me. I know something about God because I read John 1. Part of God's glory is He's gracious. And He has nothing but truth. And when I read my Bible and think about that, I get it. God's glory, part of that is He's gracious. And He's truth. He is truth and He speaks truth. I get it. So when I read John's Gospel, I have these portraits of Christ. I'm seeing Christ in a way I won't without the Scriptures. The Scriptures become that window into heaven. They become the glasses we put on that let us see God, Christ, God in His glory in ways we cannot Otherwise, it's one of the reasons we have the Scriptures with us. They, they don't just inform us about life, but they let us, they help us see God as He is. So, read your Bibles. Revelation 4, I won't read that now, but you know, you read these passages in Revelation in which you, you're taken with, like Isaiah was, up into heaven and you see the, the courts of heaven and you see the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world with all of heaven worshiping and bowing down to Him. And I read that and I'm like, wow, that's where I'll be. I'll see Christ. Or I read about the judgment seat of Christ. This is a healthy one. Um, The fear of God. Do you guys have the fear of God? This is part of His glory. I fear God because I know one day He's going to look me eyeball to eyeball, say, what would you do with the life and the time and the responsibilities I gave you? That's in 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5. And when I read that, I'm like, whoa. I'm going to see my dad. I'm going to see Jesus Christ at the end of my life face to face. Nothing and no one between him and me, and I'm going to give account. Wow. God's glorious, and and I better toe the line here. I get that when I read the Bible. I don't get it if I don't. 
I get it by reading the Bible. Here's another one. You can overlook this one easily. Ask God to show you His glory. Pray. Don't pray about God's glory. Pray and ask God to show you His glory. Now, I'm on solid ground when I say this. Exodus 33. Moses, who knew a thing about God, spent a little time with Him, camped out on a mountain with Him, performed all the miracles, seized the glory in the bush, seized the cloud and the fire, strikes the rock and the water comes out, right? Moses prayed and he said, God, show me your glory. He knew God in ways on this earth we don't and won't. But whatever he knew, he still wanted more. So he prayed and he said, Lord, show me your glory. I want to see more of you. And so God did. And this is when God puts Mo in the rock, covers him with his hand, walks by, lets Moses see him from behind. Guys, Moses wouldn't have seen him if he hadn't asked. That's the point here. So if I want to see more of God in his glory so that I'm inspired to live my life to glorify him, I can ask him, Lord, show me your glory. I want to see more of you. Another thing is this, I think of this particularly in the the church gathered, worship God. Um, This is on two levels here. Um, When I worship God, I'm declaring what's true of Him. I'm honoring His glory. That's a good thing all in itself. But you know what? There's this dividend that happens when I worship God, especially when the church corporate worships God. Um, I see God in ways I don't in any other venue when the church gathered worships God. God speaks to me in ways He speaks in no other form. And I'm encouraged and I'm convicted and I'm comforted in the worship of the church like I am in in no other way, no other setting, no other venue. That when I'm worshiping, I see God in ways I don't any place else. So when we gather as a church and we give ourselves to worship God, God shows up, at least in two ways. Jesus says, when two or three gather in my name, I'm there. When the church corporate meets, Christ is here. He's here in His glory. But also in Psalms it says that God inhabits the praise or dwells within the praises of His people. When the church worships, God is present in a way He's not otherwise. So when we worship corporately, there's this opportunity to perceive or sense God and His glory in a way that there's not outside of that. So when I read my Bible, I gain a greater understanding of who God is. And when I pray and ask Him, God, show me more of Yourself. Show me more of Your glory. That's a prayer God wants to answer. And when I worship with the church, I see God's glory in a way I don't otherwise. So think about this for 2009. The glory of God as the motive for my life, for the words I speak, for the things I hear, the places I go, the places I don't go, the way I accommodate and accept and trust and serve other people. This is a motive big enough for your year. This is a motive big enough for your life. No matter what comes, the glory of God is big enough motive for us. Let me close with this out of Revelation 5. John says, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them 
was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And this is our future. We're going to be in this group. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. That's our future. Father, I pray that with Isaiah we would gain some new sense, some profound understanding, some life-changing grasp of how awesome, how weighty, how full of light and glory you really are. Lord, we are dull. We are slow to hear. We don't get it, Lord. We don't perceive you the way that we should. Lord, we live shallow lives because... Our motives don't rise higher than our own glory or the glory of those around us. Father, I pray that you'd convict us of the need to see you, to know you as you are. Lord, it is a terrifying thing on one hand with Isaiah to come into your presence. Thank you for the shed blood of Christ that covers our sin, that allows us to come boldly into your presence today, to pray and to ask you for things, Lord, as we need them, or simply to see you again to gaze on you and see you as you are. Father, help us to fall in love with you again, to see you, your great worthiness, your great honor, your great glory. And then, Lord, help us live lives that reflect, even in the smallest ways, your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.